If you'd like to look on page six in your worship guide, I'm going to read from there. It'll also be on the screen today from Jeremiah 29. Also wanted to mention that we are privileged to have my friend and some of your friend, Dr. Jeff Shu. He's going to be leading us today. He's an incredible teacher. You'll be stretched. You'll be encouraged. You'll be challenged. So, Jeff, thank you for being with us today. From Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of God. Listening to the scripture being read, I was getting, I was about to settle in for a nice sermon. I thought, wait, it's me. <laughs> so got a little confused. I hope you had a nice Christmas. I know we did. Uh, very restful, and uh, that's the way I like it. And then today is really cool because I get to talk about this, like perhaps one of the coolest passages uh, in Scripture about the Babylonian exile. I know, you're excited too. You're kind of like, okay, we're going to talk about this ancient Near Eastern culture, you know, Babylon, and it's like, what in the world does it have to do for us today? Well, I get the next hour and a half to tell you. <laughs> My hope this morning is that you'll leave with a great sense of what God is up to in the world, and perhaps even more importantly, how you have been uniquely called into what God is doing in this world. And in fact, if you chase out some of the implications of what we'll be talking about today, you'll find that living in God's redemptive agenda is actually the best, make, best way to make sense of life in general and to make sense of your life in particular. Along the way, there's going to be something, a little bit of something for everyone. See, for many of us that have been church for most of our lives, you might be looking around this 
world, and you're watching all kinds of brokenness and evil and hurt and pain happening, and you rightly assume that this is because of the culture of the, way, the, the ways of the world, right? And you kind of say, oh my goodness, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and here we are as followers of Jesus, and we've got to protect ourselves from the world. And you're going to do whatever it takes to kind of protect yourself from that, right? The, the nice thing is you rightly recognize that there are all kinds of moral traps and, and difficulties that are happening, and yet, but the bad thing is if you merely fortify yourself against it, you actually reduce the surface area that we have as a church uh, to be a blessing to our city. For some of you that are still exploring the claims of Christ, perhaps you look around the world, you also see the brokenness and the hurt and the pain that exists in all of culture, and you, too, find yourself trying to protect yourself and your loved ones from all of the stuff that's happening, uh, the bad stuff that's happening, but the twist is, you might actually think that a lot of that's happening at the hands of the church, that the church actually becomes the cause of it through some of our narrow-mindedness and intolerance. And probably for the bulk of us, we sit somewhere in that spectrum, trying to figure out, we are absolutely convinced that Jesus is actually intended to be for the lost and the marginalized and the hurt among us, and yet we're not quite sure how to live in a complicated world where our view of what is good is increasingly a minority position that's shoved into the corner of society. And we find ourselves in this sort of attention. What is the posture of the church to a culture that is increasingly antagonistic to us? That's why this passage is so awesome. You excited? So this is what's happening, okay? We're here in Jeremiah in chapter 29. And up until this point, so you need to know that Babylon at this point, 2,500, so, give or take a few hundred years ago, was one of the most powerful empires in the world. They were the big kids in the block. And what they were doing, they didn't like um, Israel. I mean, if I, you know, this is still 2,500 years later, right? So the capital of, of Babylon at that time was not too far from modern-day Baghdad. It was about 200, I looked this up, 246 miles from Jerusalem to uh, Baghdad. You take Route 1, I Googled it. So that's the distance between San Diego and San Francisco, plus a few miles. It's like, so what's happening here is the big kids in the lock who don't like Israel, God's chosen people decide, you know, we're going to go ahead and give, we're going to give them difficult, we're going to figure out how to conquer them. And so up until Jeremiah 29 now, you have Babylon coming and raiding and pillaging and robbing Jerusalem, pillaged it three or four times. And the last time they came through, they basically took the bulk of the people out of Jerusalem back to Babylon, basically to function as their slaves. Now, if you're thinking about this, um, it's a very dark time for the history of the people of God. Because here we are, finally, God has delivered us from Egypt. We're here, we're settled in our land. We've decided that Jerusalem is going to be this, the heavenly city, you know, God's city, in fact. Uh, the temple's going to be there. The Holy of Holies is going to be in the temple. The Ark of the Covenant's right, in the, right smack in the middle of the people is the mercy seat where God himself dwells among his people. And so God lives in our midst. So how then do I make sense of Babylon coming and like pillaging and beating us up and then finally destroying Jerusalem and taking the bulk of the people up to Babylon? How does that make any sense? 
Is God who he claims to be? Does he still love us? What about this covenant relationship? This, is, this, this makes no sense. So the Jews, sitting in their Babylonian ghettos, you can imagine, with their bags packed by the front door. Oh, Lord, deliver us. Deliver us now. The false prophets, particularly Hananiah in the previous chapter, was basically telling them that God's going to come soon. God's going to come soon, and boy, the fur's going to fly. But this was very different than Jeremiah's read on this situation. Hananiah dies, and now word on the street is that Jeremiah is sending a letter. Oh, boy, what's Jeremiah going to say? What's the word of the Lord going to be? Surely this is going to be good news. God is on his way. We're going to be rescued. He's going to tell us to stand back and watch. The sky is going to open. Bolts of lightning are going to come down. Boom! And God's going to go, ha! I deliver you. What does God say? Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent. Verse 4. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and sons and daughters. Verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is the word of the Lord. What? Can you imagine if you were the people of God just marched up to San Francisco by the invading army? You're now functioning as their slaves. You're sitting up there and the word of the Lord comes through Jeremiah and says... Settle down. What? Build houses. Huh? Have children. Multiply. That's going to take a while. Verse 7. The ESV, which is what we read out of here, is seek the welfare of the city to which I have carried you into exile. See that the city fares well. The NIV translates it as seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you. See, behind this idea of welfare and peace and prosperity is one Hebrew word called shalom. One Hebrew word. But it takes at least three here among these two translations to be able to capture the fullness of this term of shalom. Shalom means far more than the absence of hostility. It certainly means that. But it also means it has tones of uh, economic flourishing, where people have jobs and they make a living. There are tones of justice, where things are the way they're supposed to be. Seek the shalom of the city to which I have called you. You can kind of hear the, the thinking of the faithful Jew in exile. Wait, 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 wait. God is asking me to live and work in ways that contribute to the shalom of Babylon? Our enemies? Our captors? Really? Yes, really. Well, that's not what I was expecting. 
I mean, I was expecting that God would deliver us from this very uncomfortable, ungodly, unsavory place. Surely this isn't God's design. Surely this isn't God's will. And Jeremiah tells the exiles, yeah, this is God's will. And their mission is to seek the flourishing of their ungodly pagan city. For if it prospers, if it's shaloms, if, it, if, it, if it's shalomified, you too will be shalomified. Jeremiah tells the exiles, yes, this is God's will. And their mission is to seek the flourishing of their ungodly pagan city. We'll get you back to Jerusalem. That's what verse 10 said. But for now, I've got a more counterintuitive plan that in the end will make far more sense. It'll bring me more glory while helping you grow and experience life in ways that you couldn't in the comforts of Jerusalem. It's as if God says to the exiles, you are called to be in a strange land, working to bless it. Learn to live in exile. Learn to bless the city to which I have called you. And don't see exile merely as a place of judgment, but embrace it as the context in which you live on mission with me. You are the means by which I will accomplish my purposes for Babylon. And right now I'm seeking a shalom through you. I'd argue that as Christians today, we have the same disconnect as the exiles did back then in this very passage. We too can be found waiting and hoping that God will someday deliver us to heaven where all will be right and good. We might look forward to the day when we can sit on the clouds and eat sweet and salty and cholesterol-laden foods with no effect. Rescue me, Lord. Take me out of here. But in this passage, God tells Israel... And I think the message is the same for us. But you also belong in a strange land. You've been called here and worked to bless it. Learn to live life in exile and bless the city to which I have called you. Don't see exile as a place of judgment. Embrace it as the context in which you get to live on mission with me. Whoa! Well, that's new. Well, no, not really. Not really. If you think back to the very, first, the very first moment where God says, basically Abraham, and says, you know the reason why I'm blessing you and your descendants? is not because I like you only. No, you're blessed to be a blessing to all the nations. That's what the mission is for God's people. And that is the same mission that the, people, the children of Israel were called to when they were brought into exile in Babylon. This changes everything. You know, for those of us who you know, have been in the church long enough, we have seen how it used to be where it was okay to have the Ten Commandments on the courthouse wall. And now suddenly you can't even really bring up your faith at all at work or in the public sphere without fear of reprisal. And then we're trying to figure out how in the world do we get to live on mission with God when I can't even say anything about my faith? Well, you know, it's not an unusual time. This is exactly what happened in Babylon with God's people. 
And what do you do? We don't, we don't fortify against ourselves against culture. We don't actually try to dominate it and tell it what it ought to believe. And we don't merely accommodate to it by just blending in. We live as a faithful presence, faithful to God and his mission in the midst of a, of a, of a world that has a very different set of values than ours. What it requires us, however, is to have a very significant shift in perspective. So what I want you to see is we're going to contrast what it's like when you're thinking about living, if, if you lived your entire existence in Jerusalem, versus if all of a sudden you find yourself in a minority culture and in, in, uh, enslaved in a culture that is antagonistic to yours. It really changes the kinds of questions you wind up asking. For example, if you say, hey, who calls the shots? Well, in Jerusalem, we do. We're the dominant culture. So things should be the way we say it is. But when you're in Babylon, we don't have any power. We have no authority. How am I supposed to live the Christian life? Well, you can. This is what God calls us to, and we'll talk about how he calls us to do that. Another question that winds up getting asked is, who deserves shalom? Well, we're in Jerusalem, of course we do, because you know God dwells in our midst. This is why he's here, to give us peace and prosperity and all that. And when we're in exile in Babylon, we really need to experience God's shalom. That's who deserves it. Deliver us. Our bags are packed. But wait. Actually, God calls us to seek the shalom of Babylon. That's different. Next question. What was the call? It was the same in both places. It's, this is the Abrahamic covenant. We have been blessed in order to be a blessing to all the nations. The amazing thing is that the mission doesn't change. Even though, you know, we're, uh, God's people are uh, experiencing some judgment for not having been faithful to him over the years. Now, shalom is really what we're going after and what God promises. And if you did a really, you know, I'm sure someone has done this in a doctoral dissertation and probably in a whole mess of books. But if you look at what shalom looks like, right, it means peace with God. But it also means that we get to experience peace within ourselves peace within our relationships with other people, and peace with the created order. It's a fourfold notion of what shalom, what this peace is. What's really interesting about that is that um, when you start looking at what Jesus' primary teaching theme is in the New Testament, it was the kingdom of God. And if you want any sense of what Jesus' reign and rule looks like, you can use the word shalom to describe it. We'll talk about this in a moment, but what I want to draw your attention to right now is this idea that we sometimes do not have a clear sense of what it means to participate in the shalomification of our neighbors. We don't know what it looks like to love our neighbors to life. And so sometimes we have this strange thing where we divide into a category of what are holy sacred activities and what are just ordinary secular activities. So this is a little bit of a stretch, but this last line will do a great job of transitioning to my next point, which I know you want. So what are the sacred tasks? What are we supposed to do to follow after God and to serve him and his mission? Well, in Jerusalem, we do the sacred kinds of things. We do the sacrifices. We do the whole temple sort of thing. But in, in Babylon, in exile, where there is no temple, what are the sacred tasks that God calls the people of Israel to do in order to be on mission with him? What are they? Normal, everyday, 
economic activities. Look down to verse 5. What are they supposed to do? Build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage. Do you hear the sacred missionary activities that God's people are supposed to engage in? Sounds pretty ordinary, doesn't it? Build houses. Oh, we're going to get the carpenters going and the masons and the brick makers and layers and we're going to have to learn from the locals and maybe apply some Jewish knowledge and methodologies and techniques. We're going to need suppliers and middlemen and we're going to need accountants and bankers and we're going to have to participate in trade and prosper the Babylonian economy. Is that what God's calling us to do? Build houses and live in them. Unpack your bags. Go to Target. And get what you need to be here for some time, fully engaged, not just scraping by. Plant gardens. Buy rakes and shovels and buckets to irrigate. Maybe or invent some irrigation solutions. Discover and learn the best crops of this Babylonian climate and planting seasons. We're talking about agriculture, agronomy, and ecology. Plant trees. Eat their produce. Learn how to harvest and distribute the harvest well and efficiently with low spoilage. We're going to need millers to make flour and bakers to make matzah and other unleavened options. This means we're going to have people working in nutrition and camel trucking. Take wives and sons and daughters. Grow the family. Be parents. Raise kids. Teach them Hebrew and math and probably some Babylonian astronomy. Be a soccer mom and a little league dad. Do you see that the path to seeking the shalom of the city involves some very ordinary-looking, common, everyday sorts of callings? The sacred ministry of shalomifying Babylon involves our everyday work. All sorts of activities, from parenting to irrigating to discovering, optimizing, and capitalizing. These are sacred vocations. This is why the, the point, I forgot to mention it, is that we get to actually embrace the sacredness of our ordinary lives. When you're thankful for God's blessing, recognize that God used physicians and nurses and pharmacists and all kinds of people to discover and deliver that healing. When you're thankful that your kids can learn and read and write and, and get a job and hold a job, Recognize that teachers and educational administrators help them to flourish. When you enjoy being in a comfortable home, realize that someone else harvested the wood for your two-by-fours and made the asphalt for the shingles on your roof and extruded the PVC pipes that irrigate your lawn. All right. Well, that's interesting. Are you saying that there's more of my ordinary, everyday life that God uses to serve my neighbors than I know? Yes, and it's sacred. So what's it look like for each of us to embrace our work or our callings or our vocation to help our neighbors and our communities flourish? Simply recognize and embrace all that God has graced you with. And then steward it 
to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which God has called us. Now, when I talk about stewardship, I don't want to even, you don't even, don't think about money. Don't even think about money, because you know what that, what it means to steward your money, right? But if we took every dollar out of this congregation, we would still be embarrassingly rich with God's graces upon us in human capital that also must be stewarded for the loving of our neighbors, to love our neighbors to life. Think about it. You steward certain educational opportunities and assets. You have education, you have degrees, you have experience, you have knowledge of all sorts. You have occupational knowledge. You know accounting. A lot of you know accounting. I don't know accounting. Engineering, physics, gardening, sewing, how to sweat a copper joint, and the list goes on. You have relational power. You know people in all spheres of society. Some of the financial world, some of the political realms. I mean, these are, you know, these are all things that God graces us with. And when God graces us with all these things, he does that not merely for us to, to make our own living and to advance our own lives, but we're actually called to steward what God graces us with to love our neighbors to life. This is how it works. So I hope you see that there's far more to be generous with than merely your bank account. You have the opportunity to be generous with your love. And more than just treasure, you get to steward your time and your talent as well. You know networks of people that can help other people. This is how it all works. What you've been graced with is to be stewarded for the shalom of our city. It's the way in which we love our community and love our neighbors to life. We are to hoard what God graces us with. We are to hide in our Babylonian slums. We are to create some sort of uprising to overturn the government so that, they, they, so that things are the way we like it. The mission of the people of Israel in, in, in Babylon is not unlike the mission called to, that, that we're called today. And that is to be a counterintuitive expression of love embodied. A counterintuitive expression of love embodied. Like the exiles, what we're called to is not a moping around, woe is me, defeated Christianity. Quite the opposite. In today's passage, we see that we've been graced not merely for our own sake, but for the sake of others. You know, it's just really amazing that God is on this remarkable trajectory through all of history, loving his people, loving people, even though they have been frail and broken and rebelling against him. And he says, well, we're going to fix that. It's this whole Jesus thing. And somehow, in the midst of all of what God is up to, he chooses frail, broken, selfish people like us to participate in that amazing work. And I get to do it as an accountant, as an engineer, as a nurse, as a stay-at-home parent, as a soccer coach. What more of our life is more sacred than we know. 
more of what we do is part and parcel of the creating the ways of the kingdom that shalomifies our neighbors far more than we know. This is what this passage calls us to. Well, as we finish up, the last point is called, you know, if, if the first point is to embrace the city and the second one is to embrace um, the ordinary is more sacred than we know, the, really the, the thing we need to end on is Jesus. How do we embrace the Prince of Peace and, how, and why does that make a difference? You see, Jesus, I have to say this carefully, Jesus didn't come just so our sins could be forgiven. Yes, that is certainly true. He did deliver us from the penalty of our sins, but really he spent the core of his teaching talking about the kingdom of God, saying, you want to know what the benevolent reign of God looks like? What the kingdom of God looks like? It's shalom. It's peace. It's prosperity. It's justice. And he spent his time not only speaking about that and teaching about it through his words, but embodying it in his life and in his deeds. This is what we get to do. We get to be an embodied presence of this redemptive, of, of God's redemptive story. And we get to do that uh, as a neighbor to the people in my cul-de-sac and all the things that they face the people in my workplace as I serve them. Jesus, we find Jesus healing the sick and feeding the hungry and has margin for the marginalized. And this is precisely what you would expect from the Prince of Peace. The King of Kings would rule in such a way that the world would look like it ought to look like. Shalom. Jesus was no self-serving dictator. This was an other-serving lover of your soul. Jesus is a king. Jesus is a king like no other. And as you find yourself reflecting on who he is, you find yourself saying, wow, God has been so gracious. I have been so loved. You find yourself increasingly surrendering your selfish tendencies. And you find yourself, by God's grace and his Holy Spirit, being transformed increasingly to resemble the Prince of Peace. And that's the promise. Not that you have to go and do good things to your neighbor because you have to, but because as you walk with the Prince of Peace, you find yourself resembling him, and you find yourself feeding the hungry, like coming alongside the lonely and having margin for the marginalized because that's the kind of person you've become. And that's the promise then, right? How do we live as a redemptive presence in a world today seeking the shalom of San Diego, of Tijuana, of Southern California? Not by insisting that they live a certain way, but by embodying this countercultural, shalomifying way. It's a great promise that I can actually serve God in the middle of my ordinary life. This is what it means to be a transformed person on mission with God in all of my life. Praise the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, what an amazing, amazing promise that you might be able to use frail and broken people like ourselves to serve you. That you don't look at us with frustration, 
But you see us as a means by which you will extend your love and flourishing to this broken world. And so, Father, despite every selfish tendency we might have to want to sit comfortably on our couch, binge-watching something, would you awaken within us a deep sense of your mercy and grace upon our lives? Would you awaken within us a greater desire to steward all that you have graced us with so that we might be able to love our neighbors to life? And so, Father, even today as we begin this conversation, would you cast, would you give us a fresh vision of what it means to shalomify our neighbors, our communities, our city for your glory and not ours? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.